If you would turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we read the first uh, part of it last time, and we'll complete this chapter and go on into chapter 7 after we've covered uh, what remains here in chapter 6. And before I get into the weeds of all the flood stuff, which will keep us busy, I had Daniel end a little earlier tonight because I think I'm going to ramble a little while on this. Um, So at any rate, before I get into all that stuff, I want us to step back and remember where this fits in the whole covenantal history of God's people. God created the heavens and the earth, and he placed Adam and Eve in the garden to be his vice regents on this earth. They were to rule it uh, in God's stead, and uh, they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and govern this world that God had created uh, gloriously for man in all its richness. It was a marvelous creation, and man had a wonderful opportunity. Uh, he, he did have one prohibition. He was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God made a covenant with Adam and Eve there in the garden, the covenant of creation. And there was this relationship. Marriage was a part of it. The uh, Sabbath day was a part of it. Uh, his tilling the garden, labor was a part of it. All of those elements were a part of the covenant relationship God had with his people from the very beginning. <clears throat> but they had that one prohibition, that test, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that they would eat of it, they would surely die. And uh, tempted by the evil one, we don't know when he fell exactly time-wise, but he was already on the scene by Genesis 3. The evil one came and tempted uh, Eve, and she gave the fruit to Adam, and they rebelled against God. We need to see that not just as a little picadillo, well, it's just a piece of fruit. No, this is, uh, this is a uh, person made out of clay who stood up against the mighty God of creation and said, we will not obey you. And so this is a, this is a violent rebellion against Almighty God and his authority. And the consequence was significant. They didn't, they began to physically die. They didn't completely physically die, but spiritually they died immediately. They understood, they saw their nakedness. They tried to cover it in their own way and were not able to. And God comes to them in the garden and God has to initiate another covenant. They broke the first covenant So God had to initiate another covenant, the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, God said, I am going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. And then a son of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head while the serpent would strike at his heel. So this covenant of grace is like a tree planted there in the garden and it continues to grow and bear fruit throughout the rest of time until the end of time. So here we have this uh, dilemma. Adam and Eve have sinned and there's the descendants of the woman and the descendants of the serpent. And when we arrive on the scene of Genesis 6, we've seen the development of sin 
in the, lo- the line of the righteous. We've seen the development of, excuse me, in the line of the, the serpent. And we've seen the development of faith in the line of the righteous. But the development of sin far overtook the development of righteousness. So that at the beginning of Genesis 6, remember we read, God <clears throat> saw the wickedness was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thought of men's hearts was only evil continually. He sees men's total depravity. And the patience of God had come to an end. And he would no longer put up with the wickedness of men. And so he was going to send the flood to judge this world. uh, To to, um, wipe out all humanity, except grace enters in again and grace enters in and he chooses a man named Noah and takes Noah and his family and he's going to use them to preserve alive uh, a host of animals and his family And so Noah becomes the second Adam. He's not the second Adam, that's Christ, the way Paul presents that theology. But he is the second Adam. There's going to be a new beginning. Uh, I'm going to get ahead of the story just a moment. Uh, Sadly, after the flood, God continues to see that of the great wickedness in man and that every imagination of the thought of his heart is only evil continually, even after the flood. We can't escape our original sin. We can't escape the contamination of sin. And one day, God's patience will end again. I'm getting ahead of the story, but one day his patience will end again and there will be another judgment and that will be at the end of time. So we come to the story of Noah in Genesis 6. And I want to read the remainder of of, uh, chapter 6 for us. And then we'll cover 7 piece by piece. Um, We went through, we studied last time, uh, we were in Genesis verses 1 through 8, where God is seeing the wickedness, he's determining to judge, uh, he's poured out his grace upon Noah uh, and remember Noah's parents name him comfort. Perhaps God will comfort us in the days of Noah. <clears throat> they thought he was the Messiah or they thought he could be the Messiah, the son of the woman. Well, he wasn't any more than Cain was the son of the woman. But he is going to be a, a means by which God will bring comfort to the people in providing salvation through the, the ark, through the judgment of the flood. So let's, let's begin in verse 9. I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter to get kind of a flow and flavor of it. And we'll come back and talk about some of the details. <clears throat> so Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Now, let me pause there for a minute. I won't do this throughout this whole reading. But remember, we have that repeated phrase many times in Genesis. It's kind of a new accounting, a fresh accounting of a genealogy or of a lineage. And that's important. That's, that's significant for us to keep in mind. These are the generations to remind us of uh, special significance of that. Okay, back in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, uh, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So we have this story of the, the flood, and what we're going to do tonight, hopefully, is uh, take this part of Genesis 6 as the uh, command to build the ark and some of the details of that, and then Genesis 7, look at the actual arrival of the flood. <clears throat> so God summons Noah to build the ark here in this section from um, verse 9. On through the end. Noah was a righteous man because God had made him righteous. He had three sons, um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He repeats his uh, evaluation of the earth that it's corrupted. And then God announces in in a clear way that he's going to make an end of all flesh and uh, later, and he's going to destroy them with the flood. So God is uh, seeing that the earth again is filled with violence and on account of this wickedness of men, and he's determined to destroy them and to uh, escape the wrath of God there. He's going to have to construct something uh, to, so that he will protect them. So there we get in verses 14 to 16, this de- description of the ark that he's to build um, <clears throat> make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, we don't know what gopher wood is. Um, it's not identified clearly in any sort of way. A lot of people have had guesses. Some people think it was a form of cypress wood, which is a very hardy wood. But it was available to Noah at the time, and it was an important, it was, it was an element that he was going to use to build the ark. <clears throat> and he was to make rooms in the ark and cover the inside and outside with pitch. 
Now, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, he says the Hebrew form of the word for pitch is uh, almost identical to the Hebrew word for atonement. And so that there is a reasonable connection that we can make, at least with the imagery of the pitch that covers the whole ark inside and out as protecting them through the flood. And you and I are covered with the blood of Christ so that when the judgment of God comes on the last day, you and I will also be covered and protected by Christ and by his blood. And he goes on to say uh, there to make it, uh, and he gives the dimensions, it's 450 feet by, uh, let's see, I, had, I did the, the math on this, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Uh, let me come back to that description just in a minute. The ark, uh, one thing about the name ark, it appears in only one other place in the Bible, and the other place in the Bible where you see the word ark, it's in the story of Moses when he was protected by God from death, first by the midwives, then his mother puts him in an ark and sets him on the water and sends him adrift. And God, of course, brings Pharaoh's daughter. And John Curid, just to kind of draw our thoughts on this, he says, it's not coincidental, both of the arks, Noah's ark, Moses' ark, both of the arks were used to save the occupants from destruction by water. Noah and Moses both endured watery ordeals that led to their preservation, and both of them ultimately served as deliverers of the godly seed. So you have this ark uh, full of imagery. You have the, um, the pitch covering it inside and out, and you have the dimensions. It's really a big boat. It's uh, not as big as many of our ocean liners today. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't go too far afield. The Titanic was uh, 880 feet long, 92 feet wide, and 60 feet tall. So bigger than the ark. Uh, but then we uh, look at the USS Arizona, brings it down a little bit. It was 608 feet long. So we're getting a little closer. <clears throat> if we jump all the way forward to the Santa Maria, one of Columbus's ships, it was only 117 feet long. So it was almost a rowboat compared to the ark. In uh, June of 2022, Diane and I had the opportunity to go to the Ark Encounter, which is a, a full-size replica of the Ark. It's in, um, where is it at? It's uh, in Kentucky, Williamstown, Kentucky. I have it. I, I'll find my note as I'm going along here. And there's a creation research, so it's in, in Kentucky, and about an hour north, just south of Cincinnati, is a creation science museum. But at any rate, the Ark Encounter is a marvelous um, trip. If you, have, if you get the opportunity to go there, it's well worth your time and money to go to it. Now, some things you go to visit, and it's very disappointing. But this is one of those things where you come up over the hill and just... Um, captivating the whole 
landscape is this huge structure. It's the, as I understand it, the largest wooden structure in the world. And it would have been an amazing structure in that day. It certainly is. It's an amazing structure in our, in our own day. And again, well worth your time to go. But this boat, this ship was built in such a way to not only house the, uh, the people and the animals that needed to be housed in it, but to protect them through a violent uh, water event like this flood. And they had to uh, make it in three decks. <clears throat> the uh, ancient rabbis said the top, the top deck was for the human beings, the middle ones for the animals, and the bottom was for the refuse. Um, but they had to store the feed somewhere as well. So uh, anyway, there's these three decks, and they um, had to build a roof over it with an opening, and so it was built in such a way that the elements would stay out, but you could get light in uh, to the ark uh, through, the, through this window that was around it uh, above. <clears throat> uh, and as we think about, uh, this will kind of overlap with other things we're going to talk about. As we think about how did, Moses, how did Noah get all this together? I mean, he, was, it was, he was given 120 years so for... Over a hundred years, he and his sons and probably hired men were at work building this. And how did he get all the animals there? Well, obviously, God's the sovereign one. He can tell animals to go wherever he wants them to go. <clears throat> but it's reasonable to think that God used the migrating instinct in animals and kind of tuned it so that they would all, or the representative animals, would make it there to... Um, uh, to where Noah was building the ark. And another thing that causes some people frustration is how do they have enough food for all these animals? Well, again, God could have used the hibernating instinct of at least some of the animals so that they might have slept for a good part of the trip. I mean, they were on the boat for a year, so they had to be ready and provide for them. But nevertheless, uh, God could have used this hibernating instinct as some animals have for them to, you know, the lizards or <clears throat> the bears or whoever, different animals that might have slept for a good bit of the journey. So in verse 17, God says, Behold, I will bring a flood upon, of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth will die. And it's the third time that God has repeated this statement that he's going to bring judgment. Uh, John Curid suggests the reasons that Moses repeated this, or it's repeated three times in Noah's account, is first to point out the certainty of the judgment. Secondly, to underscore that God will be honored and glorified and vindicated in his righteousness through this judgment. Uh, third, to demonstrate his long-suffering nature, that he provided many years and many opportunities uh, for repentance. And finally, to give reassurance to Noah as he's building this ark uh, that uh, he's not wasting his time. <clears throat> but then in verse 18, we have a significant point 
says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. And uh, then we'll go to the animals here in a moment. So, but God's making a covenant. This is the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible. Though the elements, hopefully you've seen that, the elements of a covenant structure have been there all along. And here's the covenant made with Noah that he's going to preserve him and his family and all these animals in the ark through the, through the flood. So we have the covenant of creation, <clears throat> the covenant of grace, and the covenant now here with Noah. Now this covenant is going to be expanded after the flood to include all mankind, uh, all in the world, to remind them that he will never again send a flood to destroy the earth. Now, he doesn't say that he's never going to judge the earth again, but he's never again going to send a flood. And the sign that he will give for that is the the rainbow. But here at this point, we might make a distinction. We don't want to, we're not making a division from the, uh, the broader covenant of Noah that will come. But perhaps here, see the focus is on preserving Noah and his family and all these animals uh, in the ark. Uh, Every every living thing, verse 19, of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And this creates a real problem for some people because they can't see how could even a boat this size have housed all the animals. And so it's really important, I think, for us to appreciate the fact that it wasn't that Noah had to have every single conceivable dog on the ark. He just had to have a pair of canines. He didn't have to have every single conceivable kind of cat, wild or domesticated, on the ark. He had to have two felines, a male and a female. And we could get down the list of all kinds of other animals. So it's not like he had to have every conceivable animal, but he had to have every, every variety of animal, every variety of lizard, the sea creatures, they wouldn't have needed to be in the ark. But even the birds, they had to be in the ark. And so he had to have two of all different kinds. So all the DNA for all the variety of dogs and cats and other animals that would come would be bound up in that pair that God sent Noah's way. And so it it helps make the, the idea of putting all these animals in the ark more manageable. Um, so at any rate, that, that is, I think, a helpful, uh, in, in the Ark Encounter, they have a really very fascinating display of the housing, uh, potential housing for Noah and his family and of all the different animals. And they have images of what maybe some of these pairs looked like at that time. And it's a very interesting, very Thoughtful. It's obviously some conjecture, but at the same time, it's reasonable 
uh, conjecture on how all of that came to be. And they had to park, pack the ark with, um, with the food that was needed. Uh, all of the animals at this time would have been under a veggie, were probably vegetarians. Uh, it was after the flood that God gave man a meat to eat. But the last verse of, of chapter six says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is repeated several times in this account. Noah was a man who, a man of faith, who acted according uh, to the command of God. He did all that God commanded him and honored God in that. All right, <clears throat> we've been kind of slow. I may speed up a little bit, but we're going to get into seven and the story of the actual flood as it comes. Uh, what's interesting is there are ancient accounts of a flood. Uh, one of the very well-known ones is the Mesopotamian uh, epic of Gilgamesh. And the unbelievers would say, well, Moses is just imitating these ancient pagan stories. But they get it all backwards. Uh, Moses isn't imitating an ancient pagan story. He's the story. He's the original. And they're all imitating him. And so... Um, you will find in pagan literature stories of the flood, and that's and there's nothing alarming about that. Of course, that's going to be part of their tradition. <clears throat> their families came from that as well. So we come into uh, chapter seven, and it begins with the command to enter the ark. Then the Lord said to Noah, "Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation." Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. There's some extra animals besides the basic pairs. They're going to be the purpose for sacrifice following the flood, <clears throat> and obviously Noah was familiar with the laws of sacrifice. They had come really from creation. Uh, Cain and Abel had probably known the laws of how to worship God and the sacrifices they needed to make. Uh, it wasn't written in the law until Sinai, but it was statutes that God had laid down already. <clears throat> and then in verse four, in seven days, the flood will come. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Why seven days? Seems like a lot to get in, but at any rate, that's the last uh, gathering of everything to get on the ark. One interesting thing is uh, the ancient rabbis, they interpreted this seven days, not just for getting in the ark. He says, they say that <clears throat> it, they were seven days of mourning for the righteous man, Methuselah, uh, for whose honor the Holy One, blessed be he, had regard and therefore postponed punishment. And um, interestingly, uh, Methuselah, if you have a chart or something, died the, uh, the year the flood came. And some of you remember Frank Dolan and uh, he put together a little chart. It's very interesting. If you want a copy, I'd be glad to make some copies and give it to you. 
but he worked out all the ages of all the people. And it comes to uh, Methuselah lived until the year, according to his chart, 1656. And from Moses' age at the time of the flood, at 600 years, because he was born in 1056, he, he, uh, the, the flood began in the year 1656. So it's just a fascinating little thing. Um, for those that remember Frank, he has a note at the bottom, there may be mathematical errors, so don't let your salvation depend on the above. <laughs> it sounds just like him. <clears throat> but it's fascinating to think about, and you can do that work yourself. There's some of, you, some of the young people probably are itching to a project like that. But at any rate, uh, whether it was, it, it was the year if Methuselah died, uh, whether the seven days were to mourn him or not, that the rain will last 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you're familiar with that terminology. There are many 40 days and 40 nights in Scripture. <clears throat> you have the wilderness wandering for 40 years. The number 40 designates a time of testing, a, t- a time of trial. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days. Uh, Jesus was tempted for 40 days. Noah and his family are going to go through a period of great testing. And uh, verse 5, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of, the, when the flood of waters came upon the earth. <clears throat> the last time Noah's age is mentioned, it, he was 500 years when he had his sons, Shem, Hem, and Japheth. That doesn't mean that was when God warned about the flood. Uh, with the 120 years in view, um, Noah was 480 years when he was warned that a flood would come. And then his sons came when he was 500 years old and they entered the ark when he was 600. So verse 7, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. You notice I read several times here about creeping things. If you like lizards, you're happy about that. That if you like snakes, David Bonner, for those of you who remember, uh, he was the critter kid and uh, he loved snakes and reptiles of all sorts. That would have made him very sad if that had been left out. But he knows that God put snakes and lizards on this earth for us. Uh, So God had them bring everything in uh, to the ark, these, all these animals. And in verse 10, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the water arrives from two sources, and I think this is significant for at least to reflect on. How did we get so much water to flood the entire globe? Well, when God created uh, the heavens and the earth, and I didn't look it up, but I think it was on day two, and he separated the waters above from the waters below. 
And in God's creation of the world, uh, he put uh, a large amount of water in the, the, the sky. Some speculate that there was a canopy around the globe uh, prior to the flood and the waters were in that canopy, <clears throat> creating kind of a, a greenhouse effect in, on the earth, uh, made things produce better, helped maybe the long life lives of men. And then the waters below were under the ground and perhaps there was maybe, maybe there was only one giant land mass and the waters were uh, confined under them. And from Genesis 2 verse 5, as far as we know, um, that there was uh, no rain up to this point in time. Uh, it says there that the water, that the earth was watered by mist that came up out of the ground. So when it talks about the uh, waters of the deep, it's looking at those springs, that reservoir of water that God had created and placed <clears throat> under the landmass, that God un was undoing creation and opening up that reservoir and all that water was flooding out. And then the other was that uh, he opened the fountains of the great deep and the windows of the heaven were opened. And so we were seeing here an uncreating cre of the creation <clears throat> that he breaks open the, uh, the, 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 the windows of heaven and pours down rain 40 days and 40 nights. It, uh, the very wording of the text communicates the idea that it was an abnormal rainfall. We're not even talking a Hurricane Harvey rainfall. We're talking about multiplying that by 10 times. Uh, <clears throat> the amount of water coming from above. God was undoing the original creation. And um, it's just interesting to think about this. And again, it, there's a, just a bit of speculation as we're commenting on it. But um, there was a, there's a couple displays in the Creation Museum that I found really very fascinating. <clears throat> One was regarding the um, size and nature of the ark and all the different pagan descriptions of the ark. And they did testing, uh, model testing, and demonstrated that every ancient pagan mythology description of an ark could not possibly survive a flood. But Noah's Ark could. It was built for such an event. And the other thing that was very interesting is if there was this canopy and there was a sort of a, a, tep, a, a, um, a greenhouse effect throughout all the wor world, then, then there would have been kind of a similar atmosphere everywhere. And in one particular display uh, regarding what happened after the flood, uh, they were talking about immediately after the flood, you could have probably swum in the waters of the ocean at, in the Ant at Antarctica because the tepid water was still worldwide. But then things began to change. Volcanoes, mountains, uh, and the volcanoes and their ash created an ice age and it changed 
<clears throat> everything. Just interesting to think about. Uh, then we continue on to verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. God shut the door of the ark and closed it after Noah and his family and all the animals entered. He's the one that shut the door. And the concept of the door is very interesting and significant. Derek Kidner, he writes, the door is of obvious importance Literally and in symbol, our Lord made much of the figure in the metaphor of the sheepfold. Uh, the, um, and, and then he goes on to talk about a few other things. But the idea that God had opened the door for Noah and his family, and then now he shuts it and closes all <clears throat> the rest of mankind out. And that's God's uh, mighty sovereignty doing that. So then picking it up at verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits Deep, <clears throat> so all the mountains were covered. Uh, it does definitely communicate a universal or worldwide flood. There have been those who have objected to that and tried to defend that it was a, only a local flood. But um, uh, Whitcomb and Morse, uh, John Whitcomb and Henry Morse, wrote a book called *The Genesis Flood*, where they talk about a lot of the character of the flood, and it doesn't make any sense for. Noah to have built a ship the size that he did for a local flood uh, because God simply would have said, Noah, get out of here and go there and you'll escape it. Uh, It's possible that not all the very tall mountains were formed yet, that they may have been formed as a consequence of the effects of the flood on the earth. But nevertheless, the flood Uh, covered the entire earth. And not all Christians accept that or believe it. I had a Methodist minister friend, really a wonderful guy, but um, he was horrified at the idea that it was a universal flood. He thought it was nuts, nutty talk. And I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian. I believe he was a Christian, but, and again, he was, I have lots of stories about him. He was a very fascinating guy. But at any rate, not all Christians will accept that. But um, I I affirm with Whitcomb and Morris that it was. And then the the conclusion of chapter 7, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose 
nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed in the earth 150 days. <clears throat> so no, no, none survived except those that were on the ark. Well, as I bring this to a close, aside from just getting some of the details in our mind and thinking about that, <clears throat> you could disagree on some of the points I've made on uh, how these things were done or what was done. But there are two particular uh, spiritual principles I think we can gain from this. And I want to go to the New Testament to help us with this. Uh, the first is in the book of Hebrews, the uh, chapter of the heroes of faith. Chapter 11, Hebrews 11. And we have the account, uh, the comment about Noah in verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So as we look at the story of Noah, and as we look at God's use of Noah in that day, and in that, all that event, we have to see him as a pattern of faith, a pattern of grace. Noah found favor. He was given favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah responded to that favor, that grace that God had given to him, and he acted in faith, in obedience to the Lord, and built an ark. And so he becomes a pattern for us of faith in the Lord and obedience to the Lord for you and I to reflect on. Uh, we don't look to him to be obedient. We look to Christ. Uh, Noah isn't our hope, but he can be a model, a pattern, a help uh, a witness to help push us along in trusting the Lord and responding to his grace by obedience. Uh, but then in Second Peter, a few books back, in Second Peter chapter 2, we have another use of the um, story of the flood um, in the frame of some other judgments. <clears throat> So 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to, to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, so he gives all these 
elements of judgment, Noah being one of them, then the Lord knows how to rescue the, un- the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment <clears throat> until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. <clears throat> you have here the reminder that the, the flood of Noah is a reminder, along with other judgments that he lists, it's a reminder that two, of two things. God knows how to deliver the godly from trials and God knows how to reserve to, reserve to um, the, the wicked for the day of judgment. And God promised never to send a flood again upon the earth and he will never do that. He keeps his promises. <clears throat> but he never promised not to send judgment again. And one day there will be the judgment of fire upon the entire earth when time will come to an end. And this world will be brought um, to nothing and we will enter the new world, the recreation of the heavens and the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. And just as God's patience reached a limit, when he sent the flood of Noah, one day God's patience with this world will end and he will send the fiery judgment. Um, And the only way to escape the judgment of Noah was to be in the ark. And the only way for you and I to escape the judgment to come is to be in the ark. Christ. And so the story of Noah, <clears throat> well, we, we can debate a whole lot of different things, but it's very important for us to remember God can protect us and will protect us and he will provide a path of safety for us in the day of his wrath. And so may you and I embrace that hope of the gospel and uh, find our refuge in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, very much for the, the richness of your word and the, the varied nature of it, the rich elements in Genesis 6 and 7. We uh, thank you for the vivid portrayal of the reality of your judgment on a wicked world. And we thank you, Lord, that you provided a way of safety for them, for Noah and his family. We thank you, Lord, that in the wrath that one day will come. You provide us now for a way of safety through, uh, through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May you, O oh Lord, please help us to cling to him and embrace by faith the grace that you have provided for us in him. And may we live in faith and hope and obedience uh, because of that grace. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.